0: we need to learn that actually our morality progresses as we go forward and there is there is something deeply positive about the fact that if somebody says yeah this what i did 20 years ago was acceptable then and i'm really pleased that it's no longer is this is the strategy
1: behind with adam cox yuta tobias mortlock and matt wilkinson in this episode we explore the strategy behind morality in leadership. What does it take to truly understand and reconcile the principles of your actions? Ladies and gentlemen,
2: we bring to you today the strategy behind morality in leadership. And morality is a topic that we can explore from all sorts of angles and perspectives. We could talk about what drives morality, and we could talk about the consequences of moral or maybe not so moral actions. And let's see where we get with this. My first question for you gentlemen here really today is, what is a moral and what is an immoral action before and after you do
0: it? Well, I mean, I think that's I think that depends on the culture of the group that you're in um, morality is as far as I understand it is is best described as a code of conduct put forward mm-hmm. by a society or a group um, it could be religious it could be a business it could be uh, the community in which you live it could be a you know the political system in which you work, operate and therefore there are a number of um, codes and norms that people behind you know abide by, and therefore a moral um, action is one that conforms to those norms, and an amoral one is one which breaks them now what exactly a moral action is or not i mean that's that 's going to depend on the group in question uh you know amongst the three of us there are certain norms and um ways that we interact with each other and it's a you know we've always set up a safe space to discuss if all of a sudden i start turning around and attacking one of you guys or you start attacking me that would be a an amoral action as part of this group but actually if you go to the internet that's very very um almost accepted behavior sort of trolls attacking people um it's not it's frowned upon but it's actually it's it's commonplace
2: i think it's really interesting um as you're speaking that I, I couldn't agree more, Matt. And I'm thinking that quite often we only realize what morality means after the fact that, you know, if you were to start to behave in a way that Adam and I find completely unacceptable, we only really have an, we only really know what is completely unacceptable after you've done it. So it's quite a difficult thing to to become clear about. Before it gets yeah. tested, you know, before yeah. boundaries get tested. What do you think, Adam?
3: Yeah, it's, well, firstly, I, it has to be subjective, to Matt's point, mm-hmm. is that it, it's it, it's content and context dependent. So if I then kind of take it a level of abstraction higher, morality would have to be born from the relationship between experience and knowledge and with your experience of what you know to be true and your knowledge of what you of of what you think and how you think about it um you form beliefs assumptions moral positions you know all all of these kind of you know, abstract kind of constructs of thinking of which morality falls into those and I think there's also some morality will be um, more definitive and less ambiguous, like a code of conduct. And then there will be the moral stance around principle and purpose, mm-hmm. which is unspoken but potentially common, commonly understood or sometimes, actually sometimes quite frequently, misunderstood. So it's it's almost like asking the question, what is the difference between right and wrong and be explicit? I've been asked that question. Mm. I was on a panel and someone said, well, define right. And I'm like, ah, oh, are we really going to open this? Because it, 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 it's a complex question with an incredibly complex answer. and It's very difficult to, to answer. However, when we look at morality and particularly morality, if we start at morality with leadership, because... I think the position that a leader holds and the morality that he or she demonstrates um casts a shadow over what morality may be for others. Like there's you know, whether it's religious scripture, whether it's the CEO, whether it's the president. Um there's 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 a weight, there's a there's a mm. kind of a, a credibility weighting that comes with what is morally correct. And then how that is permeated through communities uh, of individuals. I think morality morality can be taught. I think is where my brain is starting to go as a starting point. Would you agree Mm -hmm. that morality is kind of a transferable
2: system Um, or belief? And I think it's a lot. You said experience and knowledge or something, right? And and the word wisdom Mm. comes to my mind as well here when you were speaking in principles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the, the word experience, I think is a really big word. Um, the, I, I have a story that comes to my mind when I listen to you. Um, am I still stable? It says my internet connection is a bit unstable. Can you hear me okay?
3: Uh, you're coming through loud and clear on this end. Yeah.
2: Fantastic. Um, so I listened to, a, um, to the story of a uh, a really impressive Royal Marine uh, Colonel that I've met a few years back. His name is Tony DeRea. He um, he took over uh, with somebody else running uh, the Abu Ghraib prison in two thousand four, a year after the atrocities in the Abu Ghraib prison made you know world news, and he talked about how he the decisions that he had to take to bring back order. To running the prison as well as actually treating everybody fairly and you know with the International Court of Justice watching whatever actions they were doing and the way he explained how he went about um, listening to the different perspectives of the people who were running the prison as well as doing walkabouts and having audiences with the actual prison inmates To me that ended up sounding like somebody who knows what's right and what's wrong and who knows what fairness means in treating people independent of what you think of them and in that way to me he created a story of what morality looks and feels like by listening to different perspectives by not being swayed too quickly by Taking a step back before judging and by being fair to everybody in the question. And so I find that a really impressive story of leadership. And today we're talking about morality. So what connections can we make between morality and leadership? Yeah, really.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to jump in here a little bit because I think think you've opened up a couple of Mm -hmm. avenues for me at least. The first is um, where mm-hmm. did he learn that 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 his sense of right and wrong, which comes down to the the code of conduct that he was brought up with. Um, and secondly, I think there is then the question of how can morality be perverted. Um, and and when I say that, you, you've got something like the Stanford Prison Experiment. Where you had a group of people walking into um, a an experiment to to look at do you have prisoners and guards and at the when they walked in, they were all the same group. they were all peers. There was no differences between them, and very quickly, the experiment had to be stopped because the guards were mistreating the prisoners, and when you start looking into that it, it goes to show that really the the question of us and them and the separation of groups can cause very very um uh, insider outsider effects as to what the morality is for the group within the group and the morality for those outside of the group and i think what you're you're touching on there is the fact that actually because you had that sense of these are these are prisoners. They're here for a reason, and they've done, They've probably done some really, really horrific things. Um, and then the the guards themselves have ended up losing their sense of morality as to the way they should behave. Partly because of what's gone on, and partly because of the the things that they've seen prior to moving into those situations. So, so for me, it, it looked. It looks at where do we where do we learn our morality and then actually how do we how is that shaped by the groups that we're actually part of? And it's almost a danger of being I've, part of a single unit groups that don't have enough connection to the wider world that I would say causes these these incidences. You know, it don't doesn't community set talking. up checks and mm-hmm. balance? Go for it.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Matt, you've just raised something that I think is incredibly important. And that allowed me to understand a little bit more about morality. And you know, the roles that I have in life and the identity that I have, like, who am I? Right? And what does that mean for my actions and for how I judge situations? And it sounded to me a little bit like, if I think about, you know, Abu Ghraib, um, you know, British Royal Marines having to run a, having to run it after it's been, you know, it's a mess. And this colonel had to almost make his personal suspending of judgment more important than the role that he had, or the the kind of the identity of I'm running this prison and the prisoners are, you know, at my mercy really. So I'm gonna just say this again and see if that if that rings true for you. So my morality almost needs to be higher than the roles or the allegiances or the and I think so my identity needs to be less attached to who's my friend and who's my foe and it needs to be of a higher order because otherwise it goes down the drain and it's immoral because I, my roles in life or my allegiances to you might make me say yes to something that you say even though in my heart of hearts I don't actually believe it because we're friends
3: Okay. So, so what we're getting to is that morality is malleable.
2: Yeah.
3: It's malleable based on circumstance and it's malleable based on context. Okay. But should it be malleable? Um, yeah. So here we go. So let's, let's kind of dig a little bit deeper. Um, I was listening to a podcast on some random click fest a while ago. I ended up on a podcast by a a Muslim cleric and he was, and it was, he was talking about kind of your principles of the faith and yeah, I like learning stuff. So off I go. Um, And there's one line that he said that's that's coming forward. Unfortunately, I can't remember his name, Um, but he was talking about the singularities of the faith and, you know, Dedicate yourself to God in service and, you know, these different things. And then the interviewer asked him, inside the individual, what is the singularity to you as an individual when it comes to your faith? And he said, ultimately, to me, in a personal capacity, in the chest, Islam is about the quality of heart. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Interesting. The quality of heart. So we're kind of moving towards, you know, in a corporate perspective, I would call it purpose. Um, In a political context, I would call it service. Um, And in a kind of a social construct, it would probably be a little bit looser, something like, you know, doing good or you know treat others the way you expect to be treated and and these sort of things there is a it's almost like thinking about it in first principles like boil it down so if because if morality is malleable at what point in time does your own personal moral compass then start to say hey no i'm not gonna take that line or i'm not going to adopt to the morality of the group or whatever it happens to be so i think there's kind of different points of morality here. There's morality within the individual and then the mar- morality of, of of a collective of people, whether it be through culture or, or so- social or uh, you know, geopolitical or whatever. Um, I think what we're doing at the moment is we're starting to unpick the different flavors of morality. And I think, given the fact we're kind of going down the path of the morality of leadership, understanding where that where that morality is born where it's kept who gets to change it it's it's these sort of questions i want to see if we can sink our teeth into the mechanics behind morality because if we understand its mechanics if we think about it in a first principles perspective we should then be able to architect a good moral framework for how to live how to lead how to do whatever it happens to be. I don't know if my thinking is kind of on track or, or not, though. What are I, you hearing? I
0: think it is, Adam. Um, you, you got me thinking about, and I think you, may, you raised this um, a while ago in one of our previous conversations, um, but it got me thinking how actually morality is, um, mal- is moulded by our circumstances as a group so as a as a as a world as an interconnected world and as as a group of people that tend to interact with people from around the world from all different natures cultures creeds um you know we have a fairly global outlook on life, and therefore our morals probably tend to be um set as a group on this call by those that are um you know to the highest level across the world right so we are you know our set of morals standards will be kind of that that amalgamation of hopefully the best of the people that we interact with if if we were then set to, hopefully uh, if we were if we were then um isolated um let's just say in the middle of a desert or the middle of a rainforest and and you've got a small group of people that the imperative is to survive and there are tribes out there that that When we've, you know, when people from the Western world or the rest of the world have have seen how they operate, their moral compass is very different. So while in the West we have a, you know, a general philosophy of leave no no one behind, in some of those tribes, actually you would kill the weakest. Um, Because for the survival of the tribe, you can't afford to have the weak holding up the rear, and therefore the morality is what is best for commu- the community, as as a whole. And so that's been set up that 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 moral imperative has probably been learnt over time as if we don't do this, we all die, or a lot of us die. And if we do do this, there's you know we can move quicker, faster, we're more nimble, and we survive. And so therefore the morality in that situation becomes very different to what we would experience where you know the most difficult thing we tend to deal with on a day-to-day basis is oh no we you know we're working from home because of covid and our wi-fi's down right The, the moral imperative in those situations is completely different and actually you know what are we doing to to help the survival of those in the country right now, we're staying at home and doing as little as possible, which is kind of bizarre, right? So, if you if you sort of look at those two uh, examples of what where does the where is the moral imperative set at? It's about survival of the tribe and what's best for the group of people that we interact with. In isolation, that becomes, I, I think can become very distinct from the greater group but with more contact um and greater connectivity we end up with something that is much more normalized across societies as a whole
3: mm. um i was interested to see how long it would take before a moral dilemma came up <laughs> and it took what 15 minutes so that's not bad um so yeah i could completely you, your point has elevated that quite clearly um I think it's interesting in relation to your point around survival and I put it in a business context for a moment and the saying that instantly lunges forward which I've said before the company will always act in its own best interest and I believe that to be definitively true um what its best interest is is context dependent I'll give you a great example um uh, current pandemic that we're in, um, many organizations are in survival mode. I get that. I was talking to uh, a midsize organization in the States, thousand employees, um, been working with them over a couple of months and their mission critical, like their bottom line, what we are going, what we must achieve now was we must keep everyone on the payroll. That was the definitive objective. We must keep everyone on the payroll. This is the state. So they want to keep everyone with healthcare cover during the pandemic. Um, And, you know, and it was interesting. I was like, okay, so fine. How are you going to enable this amongst your stakeholders? And interestingly, I wasn't aware of this when I was helping him, but a third of the company is employee owned. So the business model enabled a moral position to be taken. So the way I'm thinking about, Matt, what you just said is how, you know, when, when you define survival, survival is usually a definition around a purpose, you know, is, is it financial survival? Is it my own personal reputational survival? Is it the survival of our employees in practical terms? Like what does survival mean? And ultimately a moral stance was made where a business model enabled that to happen. Because if I'm the chief executive and I've got banks and investors and shareholders breathing, breathing down my neck, Um, and I turned around and told the street, hey, payroll's coming first, Um, a reasonable number of those stakeholders would probably push back a bit. So I'm interested in when you have, you know, moral dilemmas starting to come up, is it the wisdom of the crowd that should take over or is it the moral strength and conviction of the leader that should push on? and we all know where you know egotistical headstrong leaders can get us both positive and negative um and i'm just interested in exploring i think the relationship between morality when others have other ideas is there is, does hierarchy pull rank is it is it is it democratized like uh, uh, how should we be thinking about this so i think I that- actually
0: Mm
3: -hmm.
0: can i I go uh, yeah please do Mm
2: -hmm. i I really uh, i actually think it's not between group versus individual power in swaying what is considered moral or what's the right thing to do in a moral dilemma it is it's about almost the strength of oh it's obviously the strength of the, or the 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 importance of the problem and then the strength of the argument that either the individual or the group then takes over. So I don't actually think we can decide whether this is an an you know an act of leadership or an act of you know if a sufficient amount of people buy into it, it will become you know de facto the principle according to which we 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 live. I think it's a lot to do with with, you know, I hear the word character coming out, you know, and and I hear the word, you know, um, what do we actually do as opposed to what do we say we do? So, you know, everybody says um, in our society, um, we leave no weak person behind, like it's our espoused theory, that we say we are a, a, a society in which the weak are supported by the strong. But Is that really the theory in use? Is that really the the practical thing of how we actually make our decisions day to day? I'm not sure that that is true. And so I think if we want to talk about morality, we need to talk about what do people think is the right character and the right actions as opposed to the wrong actions. And what I wanted to say uh, before Matt, you jump in, I think we'll only ever know whether we've had the right priorities. For example, if I am the CEO of this company of a thousand people where my highest priority right now is to keep everybody on the payroll, I will only ever know if it was the right action. If later on in life in the future, I can stand up to judgment and judgment by, I don't know, it is, it must be somebody whose values codes I I respect to say, yes, that was indeed the right action. Mm -hmm. So I, I really keep on thinking that morality and the how-to of making a moral action is to think about how will somebody or a force, and it could be a spiritual or in like a moral code of conduct, how will they evaluate my action now? Um in the future, will I have done the right thing? So this it's almost like needing to transport myself into the future to see if I will have made the right decision. Because I forget, was it Matt or or Adam who was speaking, Um, you were talking about decisions by yourself and decisions when when other people are watching. And I kept thinking about character is what happens when nobody's watching. And we almost want to bring somebody in that we respect to watch us so that we make the right choices. And so that we have the character that we can then in, in the future say, yeah, this is who I am. This is my identity. I am somebody who doesn't leave anybody behind, and my actions have shown this. Matt, go ahead, please. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So, so, so actually, <clears throat> you've kind of almost complicated my thinking, which is great. Um, <laughs> so, so when Adam was talking, I was taken back to probably two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when I was speaking to the the CEO of a uh, one of the world's largest life science tools businesses, and he'd had to make some really difficult decisions of closing down uh, a few, shall we say, nascent parts of the business business units. You know, that led to some job losses, but not hundreds and thousands. I mean, not thousands for sure. And, you know, when I'm talking to him about this, so I'm asking, how do you come to that decision? And he said, well, this is incredibly difficult. You know, my, you know, my, my, my deepest aim is to grow the business. That's what I want to do. And I want to keep, you know, I don't want to be losing people. I want to be bringing more and more better people in. I want to be providing opportunities. I want to be growing. Um, But I think there's a real gray area. So the company was, um, is on the stock market. Therefore it is a target for other companies. And his moral imperative was for the business and many, as many of the jobs within the business to survive, through a financial crisis the likes of which many had not seen before and therefore the decision if you were to take the perspective of one of the people that they had to let go would probably have been an amoral one we've put all of our blood sweat and tears into this and yet we've been had to let go and yet if you look at those that have survived and several years later that is likely to have been a good decision because the company is still profitable. It's still viable and it's still growing. And so the question I think becomes is that I think there's some very obvious black and white moral decisions that we make. And then I think it gets very, very gray in the middle. And I think that's where purpose and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. having a guiding light to, uh, of who we look up to, to help guide where we you know the 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 way that we should make decisions um comes into play and um, you know if i look at the uh, one of the things through sort of stoicism that 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 i i find quite interesting is that not only do you you know as it you know do people sort of hold up you know quotes from famous people but often you find that you have somebody that you hold up as a almost as a as a, as a moral guide in some ways that you will then look up to and go, well, what would so-and-so have done in the situation? Mm. Um, I, you know, people talk about the pros and cons of having statues up and around. And I think one of the things that having a statue around can be is that you can remember, you know, you can almost say to, well, what would so-and-so have done? And you can actually almost look at them. They're almost overlooking your decisions, your behavior. Um, and therefore do the statues and the things that we have around us in some ways, play a role in helping us to find our moral compasses. I mean, of course they're not going to judge us, but potentially we can judge ourselves if we have enough, um, self-awareness through the, through the lens of those, those people that we may have around us. So I, I, you know, I find it quite interesting that, that sort of looking at how do we, how, how is this decision going to be judged in the future? Um, if you take the decisions around the responses to the coronavirus, if you, I think, is a great example. If you were to take, you know, over a year ago now, when you know the the, the the pandemic was starting to spread around the world, but Western countries were still behaving like it wasn't there, if we'd all locked down very very early, um, would would it have been considered that we were destroying the economy for no good reason? All of a sudden, now we're you know in the UK we've we've passed a hundred thousand people that have passed away, which is a, a horrific number of deaths to have incurred. And maybe the decision was yes, the economy of course was right to to to, to harm because we wanted to keep it from coming ashore. So I think that it, there's a lot of decisions where. We end up walking some very, very difficult decisions that are that there is no black or white answer to, and I think that's that's where the morality of leadership is really difficult to um, to tread, and I think it's where having, as Adam said, a purpose, and uh, this is the this is the reason why we're making these decisions, um, and if you've got a strong purpose then i think it really helps to guide the overarching morality of a decision whether or not the ultimate decision is any different it at least explains caveats puts some rationale behind it in a way that allows you to understand okay, this is why we're making these decisions and i think sometimes walking the grey path in the middle can lead us to be to question um, without a clear sense of purpose, can, can lead to people questioning actually, what are, are you doing this right or wrong? Because actually, you haven't got a clear guiding light. You are actually kind of following two masters or three, and you are trying to plot a kind of a, a path between you know many lesser of you know many lesser evils.
3: Yeah, yeah, you are definitely touching on yeah. we, we loop back again to purpose. Um, unsurprising, yet I think it's. Going to be the repeating pattern here, but Matt, you've touched on a couple of really interesting points, particularly in relation to trade-off decisions. Um, and you know, if we if we talk, you know, global pandemic, you know, it's you know, how do governments manage this? Everyone's got their own approach. Who will be deemed better i saw the lorry institute only this week released a paper kind of listing uh kind of one to forever um you know the orders of, of who has done the best job and best job wasn't necessarily measured by patients or, or deaths which i thought was interesting uh, they've got all these other different variables that they're weighing it up and it's a very very nice piece of research um but it's when it comes to those decisions i think there's a piece around transparency and communication. So let me tell just a quick story here. Um, recently, uh, you know, when I'm about to fall asleep with a computer on my chest, how oh, I do most evenings, exciting life in lockdown. Um, I uh, you know, kicking around going down YouTube rabbit holes. And uh, I came across a video recently by the CEO of a channel called Asian Bosch, Asian Boss. Props to Asian Boss. Um, They are a channel um, based out of Asia, and they produce some amazing, amazing content. Um, And I've gotten immense value out of them over the years, and the title of the video was something to the effect of um, um, we're about to go broke, something to this point. And, you know, guy sitting on a chair, the CEO, great. So I'm like, okay, let's check this out, click on it. And this guy basically just opened up and says look this is how we started this is the journey this is what's happened here is where we're at we're only going to ask once we're asking for the community to underwrite it um you know investors have gone bad um we've had to lay off heaps of staff blah 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 blah. like we're on the ropes this is a do or die moment and i remember watching this video and a couple of things immediately came forward. All of the work of Amanda Palmer's The Art of Asking. Um, If you haven't read it, read it. It's such a good book, and Amanda Palmer's dope. Um, All lunged forward in relation to being open and honest enough to ask for help when you need it. But it was being asked from a purpose, and this organization's purpose was we want to produce content that shows different parts of Asia, which is Asian boss, that's their shtick um to uh you know to bring the stories and show what's around the corner and kind of you know show this part of the world to the rest of the world so everyone can have a better understanding. Like their purpose was was um sharing knowledge through storytelling basically. And seeing this CEO go through this 10 minute video, um the second thing it reminded me of is is the saying, you know, becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It's precisely that easy and precisely that difficult. And that's exactly what this guy was doing. He was telling a story from himself, which made him the leader, but he anchored it in purpose. And the purpose is what will bring people along and create the correct moral response. So there's a couple of things there there's communication, there's authenticity, which we've had a session on, there is transparency, there is also a bit of vulnerability. You know, it's, it's, it, you'll be, you're, you're, you're humanizing the, the, the decision. And, and then if you can link that back that to the purpose. Now, if the purpose in this example is, you know, sharing good stories from a part of the world, or the purpose is to make money, or the purpose is whatever, if the purpose actually speaks to the audience and the delivery of that is correct for the audience and based on the outcome that you're going for, um, then I think the correct moral decision will become self-evident. So it's an interesting approach. Yeah, your turn.
2: I'd love to to uh piggyback off what you've just said adam and by the way i'm going to come back to repeating what matt has said about statues and how statues tell us almost mm-hmm. have, tell us moral compass i think that's incredibly beautiful we have to go there um yep. saying with this idea of excuse me i have to have a click click off something Ugh. adobe acrobat stay away from me um so you said <laughs> if you know if 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 I'm transparent and if I can communicate my purpose, then, you know, the correct, you said the correct, and I'm not sure it's about correct or incorrect, but, you know, it fits people's respond. Maybe they go with you or maybe you are convincing or you you can stand, you know, as as a leader, you can stand firmly. And I'd like to say in that process model of thinking that I have of how do I communicate my purpose? Before then comes, how do I know what my purpose is? How do I know what my principles or my priorities are? And that's where I think before even saying the how-to to to be a moral leader is to actually become aware of what makes sense to me. And I think we need to bring the body in here. We need to bring in what does sense-making mean? When people say it makes sense, it actually literally makes sense in the body. And so, Because we can't tell anybody who's listening or watching how they can define their purpose or what their purpose is, but we can help people work out what makes sense to me. And this is not intellectual. It is that it goes into storytelling. Matt did that just now with the statues with us. It goes into almost listening and allowing yourself to to receive what makes sense and then feel it in your body and it's just it's fascinating to me that whenever you say something that literally makes sense in my body my body tells me my body starts tingling and my body starts saying mm, hair stand up on my on, on my neck right and so we are much more bottom-up thinkers than we of course intellectually think you know cartesian western Western world's view of saying it must be right or it must be wrong, but we're not here in morality talking about right or wrong we're talking about this makes sense and this doesn't make sense, and I have to pick this moral code over that one, even though it's an impossible question to say which mm-hmm. one's the right one and so maybe the, the the request or the invitation that we have for people to work out what their purpose is, is to to listen to the stories of how maybe people before them in those statues that you speak about, Matt, how have they made sense of the situation? What did they choose, and does that make sense to me? And what fits? And and what you know, what does my gut say about whether that was right or wrong? Because there's no absolute at all. Hmm. And I think, Matt, you speaking about statues influencing us—that is such an like right now. It's such an important thing, right after the, the you know the Black Lives Matter movement to actually decide as a collective which statues that are communicating the values and the priorities of the site do we want to have as reminders of what is our culture, what are the norms, and what are the acts that we think are heroic, and what are the acts that we think we do not want to give them a public space. That is so, ah, I think it's beautiful. So it's about storytelling, it's about sense-making, and then it's about trusting, Right that I am becoming the leader that I need to become. Adam, you said it so beautifully. Like Leadership is to become. It's as simple as and as hard as becoming who you were meant to be.
1: And it's it's in your whole body. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind.
0: And I think, you know, just to come back to... Just to come back Mm. to statues, I don't think that there's any problem at all with having statues that act as a cautionary tale. Right. So it's the stories that you have around those statues that's important, you know. So so not every statue is there to be celebrated. Some are there to act as a caution. And so I think we have to be careful when we look at what is the purpose of this statue Mm. in this place. Are we celebrating the person for for things and I think the other thing that we have to be really careful if we're looking back in history is that our morals have evolved over time what was accept, what is acceptable now or sorry even what was acceptable 20 years ago at the turn of the millennium many of those things are no longer acceptable now if you look at what was on tv if you just look at what was on the you know the, the breakfast tv or the or the late night tv you can't get away with that now um, you even look at the, some of the 80s, 90s TV shows. Yeah. Just take Baywatch, for example. That today would be criticised for objectifying <laughs> women, for, for a whole host of things that actually at the time we grew up with, and it was fine. I mean, any of the shows that I grew up with as a kid that that were on a TV would actually now have... We'd have questions about, is this really right or wrong to be showing people? And so, so, so I think we evolve because it could be criticised for being on a five o'clock and objectifying women. Um, you know, especially the <laughs> slow-mo scenes and all of that stuff that's going on. Is that really appropriate for the way that we want to view people in what in the world? And I think that's a really difficult thing to, 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 to
1: mm-hmm. for
0: us to then be able to look back and go, this was a different time. Okay. It wasn't that long ago, but, but we have evolved and what we now think is appropriate has changed. Um, <sighs> That doesn't mean to say that we these things should be banned. And I think when you look at some of the comedy from a while ago, you know, some of that is now being absolutely, you know, people are trying to call for this whole cancel culture for stuff that was done historically and was accepted a long time ago, and now we're saying, well, this is no longer right, and we need to learn that actually our morality progresses as we go forward, and there is. There is something deeply positive about the fact that if somebody says, yeah, this what I did 20 years ago was acceptable then. And I'm really pleased that it's no longer is. And I think that's an incredibly powerful statement to be able to say. But that shouldn't mean you should vilify that person because culture, the country has moved on, the society, the the norms. Um, You know, we celebrated Wall Street. We celebrated the finance sectors during the booms. Um, you know, they were making money for everybody that, you know, the the stocks and shares and everybody's going, These, this is where you make money. And then all of a sudden we get to a crash and, you know, they're pulling the loans and all of a sudden they're still taking big bonuses and that's now wrong. And we're going, oh, hang on a second, how can we flip on people so quickly when actually their job is to make money, their purpose is to make money and not just for themselves, although they're well remunerated for it, but also for our pension funds, the things that we're paying into. And if we didn't do that, we'd be criticising them as well. So I think the world gets so complex that often morality gets difficult to unpick. And so we have to understand where is the purpose at times for some of these things. Your turn
2: are you sure <laughs> because I think you're also really for keen it. to jump in. okay I'll be really quick no really no, no quick. go for it um, I totally yours. love what you said Matt and it's um and I literally just caught myself as I was saying you know Baywatch not appropriate today who am I to say whether Baywatch is appropriate or not um but it really you talking about how we how our perception about what's right and wrong right we're talking about morality morality is about mm-hmm working out what's right and wrong and how that changes over time and depending on context. And the only thing I have as a tool here, as a psychologist, is to keep coming back to this definition of what an emotion is. An emotion is, the function of an emotion is to check whether the person and the situation fits and whether, you know, the situation and what we're doing in the situation feels right for us. And so it's really interesting to say like if I'm now watching a Baywatch episode or uh or I a, the Wolves of Wall Street episode um am I interpreting this in a way that makes sense to me and that fits with where I am where I'm in in society and then I can watch a Jojo Rabbit movie that makes fun of Nazi Germany as a German um Completely understanding that that is a way of dealing with the atrocities that have happened um in a way that tells a new story and that involves young people in the in the absurdity and allows them to make sense of something that they mm. haven't ever even experienced, so it's about working out what fits and what doesn't fit and being true and maybe I'm throwing the ball back to you, Adam being transparent Mm. about what fits for me personally and why it fits for me.
3: Yeah, I I think it's transparent about not only what fits, but it's also transparent about intent. I think there's something there in relation to the relationship between intent and purpose. Um, Intent is kind of, you know, the what's in it, the self-serving what's in it for me, sort of an approach, which is where skepticism around a moral position starts to arise. Again, it's, you know, to repeat before, you know, the company will always act in its own best interest. But what is its best interest? What is its intent? And then does that intent align to purpose? And it's almost like there's a relationship um, in relation to um, the delta between saying something and then doing something it's you know you 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 discredit you know the individual or the group who is trying to take a position a moral stance when they're saying one thing and doing something else so there is you know when that happens oh i think you know as someone who is you know looking to do the right thing trying to be you know pure of intent Trying to be transparent is really kind of you know laying it all out and going, well this is the stance we're going to take, and this is the direction we're going, and everyone jumps on board with that. I think trust and support can be lost instantaneously as soon as the actions don't match the words. So I think there is this point around you know following through or you know um, you know having evidence, that supports the moral position I think has to be probably the second step. So one is defining your purpose and the morality around it and your position. And then would be walking the walk because if you talk a good game and you don't follow through, then, then you have a problem. And I would say that large kind of large sections of, of the faith industry, if I may call it that, um, suffer this. It's like, you know, there's no shortage of religions who have extremist outliers who are very, very small in number but give the faith of the day, and you can pick from many, um, very, very bad names because the delta between the purpose and the morality and the actions don't match. And I think that's kind of, as a strategist, that's where my brain now starts to go, is how do I actualize morality in a way that builds the credibility to lead?
2: Oh, yeah. So the credibility is in how much purpose and actions overlap. You, are, The more your actions and your intentions or your stated purpose overlap, the more credible you are.
3: Yeah yeah and 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 obviously the inverse works is remains true as well is that the wider the delta um the more your credibility diminishes, mm-hmm. which makes sense you know if one to be true, the other is also equally true
0: and it's also important to to have the platform for those to even matter in the first place and I think that's where um that's where social media and some of the things we've seen with political leaders and some business leaders over the last five to 10 years as as, um, you know social media has kind of you know completely transformed the way that people can communicate to a public that has you know that's really shifted things and so you can you can be one person on social media and, and there's there's heaps of examples in in the U.S. right now where You've got political parties with some pretty extreme people on either side um, talking about things. And then actually, there's a lot of people in the centre that actually are, you know, genuinely decent people following a specific purpose. And I think the biggest problem then becomes... um, And I read a really interesting piece um, just recently. There's a, a Republican senator that's about to retire... We're not going to not going to um, follow on and actually saying it's the silence or the the inability to stand up that has been that that is uh, almost a bigger problem than, shall we say, some of the extremists. Because if you allow people to be to be given a voice, um, that's that's almost a bigger problem. And, you know, if you don't then come out and say this is against what we believe in. Um, and I think there was an example. And I think it was George W. Bush. And I can't believe that I'm, I'm using this as a good example of moral leadership, uh, considering some of the other decisions. But then the world has changed. How the world changes. Um, <laughs> but, but during, um, it's certainly one, during one of the Bush eras, uh, there was a particular candidate that was running and was denying of 9-11 and, and a whole host of things and the Holocaust and a whole host of stuff. And even though it was their own party, they came out and denounced that person as being not fit for office because of the positions that they were taking on things that were, you know, that were core to the beliefs of the community and therefore their moral standing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to the detriment of their own party. And I think that's where almost the biggest test of morality comes in. It's where, so our purpose may be to rule with a small government, our purpose may be to do this, this and this, but actually our higher purpose is to lead with integrity and to stand up for these few things. And if you can make sure that you're standing up for the things that are really, really important, then actually you do things that may actually hurt you, your career, your your party, in, at least in the short term, by actually standing up against... The things that are wrong the things that are, that that's, that don't agree with that thing with the, with those with those the, that part of the moral compass and I think we've we're seeing at the moment many times where people are kind of getting afraid to take a stand at all unless they're on one side or another you know yeah. the the centrist view is being marginalized massively
3: yeah completely completely it's interesting so there's a couple of things there um when you're talking about nine eleven deniers. I couldn't help that instantly what jumped forward is Louis C.K. has an amazing piece on Netflix trying to explain 9-11 deniers to his daughter. It's worth checking out. Um, Mm -hmm. The piece around what I wrote on my notes here, as you said it, is I kind of rephrased it a little bit. I called it the morality vacuum,
0: Mm.
3: which is when you have this absence of morality and it's what replaces it is almost tribalism if you think about it politically if you think about like sport it's you know some people are happy to abandon their own moral compass to be part of a tribe to be part of the team to be part of the party to be part of whatever and you know a, a different a different set of criteria comes in There's power in numbers. I I identify with what they're doing irrespective or or the outcomes or it's a self-serving agenda or whatever it happens to be. You've touched on a point there in relation to when morality in oneself can be easily hijacked. And, again, this morality vacuum kicks in. Um, I think there's something there. But, Matt, also to your follow-on point that you made is that you touched on purpose there, how you can lift up and go for that higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's in yourself or, or you know, an external higher purpose or predefined higher purpose. But I'm interested in learning more in and I'll throw it to you in relation to the self-sacrificing element for the higher purpose. And, you know, I know you've done work with, you know, prisons and military and all these sort of things. So I'm quite sure you have a have something to say in relation to. Hmm. What is that self-sacrificing element to throw yourself under the bus for the higher purpose, for what is deemed a just moral position, and what drives that behavior?
2: Hmm. Uh, for me, it keeps coming back to short term versus long term, and I really like the distinction that you made between, you know, you said intention versus purpose, and I, I have added in my notes. You know instrumental intention, you know, in intention to get fed, in, in you know, intention if we're talking about you know conflict societies or or you know warfaring countries, um, where my short term instrumental intention is to stay alive and to not speak up, right, when a when an oppressive force tells me to to do things that maybe my higher higher order purpose, my longer term purpose is, is in conflict with. So where's that Delta and where's, you know, and the vacuum, the more, the morality vacuum, I think gets bigger. The more there is a gap between me focusing my attention on my instrumental short-term outcome. And I think I can almost start to, to discount and, and, sacrifice short-term intention or short-term gain if i really buy into a higher purpose that in the long run it's the right thing to do to speak up it's the right thing to do to stand up towards an oppressive force and to do the right thing um the the bigger that that is you know the bigger in my in my inner order of priorities and the smaller the importance of the short term instrumental intention the more i'm going to act in line with my moral code and the more and the i only have you know second hand accounts of nazi germany and i have storytellers from genocidal rwanda um, at my disposal but i think it's when people are very very clear about how they want to be remembered how they want to have acted in front of somebody judging that is that they respect or whose moral code they they, res- they respect. That's when people choose that path,
3: while in the short term, the short term easy path. I don't so what you're almost like I'm listening attentively and the way that it's kind of gone into my head is that it's almost a self actualization slash legacy slash kind of transcendence sort of a approach. Like what do I want to be known for after my time? And again, like when I think about the higher up, you know, I don't know, but like a purpose that becomes very attractive when I think lower down kind of the structure in relation to more self-serving, um, I think it gets warped a little bit. I'm not too sure. I'm 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 not too sure. Um, I think,
0: I I think you're you're completely right there. So, um, I, you know, one of the things that, that that the Stoics kind of come out, you know, kind of come into is that almost you can leave. You could leave life, life right now. So every day, you know, you're you know, you wake up. Do you wake up? You know, do you do you survive the day? You know, we we never know when. Death is around us, and um, there's a whole concept around memento mori. So, essentially, thinking about the fact that you you may not, you know, tomorrow may not come for you. And I think with that sort of short, with that sort of vision in mind, it makes the decisions you make today, in some ways, much clearer because it allows you to say, actually, if I die tomorrow, what do I want to have done? What do I want to have accomplished today? How do I want to be remembered? and that's not going to be i'm guessing for the majority of people for having made a bucket load of money mm-hmm. it's going to be for having think... had a yeah. positive impact on people and so it's going to be about actually being able to um i think it's about actually being able to to connect and 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 think about the future of how do i how do i want to be remembered what do i want to be remembered for um, and, and also how do I want to be judged? How am I going to judge myself? Well,
3: that comes back to your statue point. Yeah,
2: mm. I like that. But I, I, I gristle a little bit. Is it bristle? Gristle? Whatever. Um, a little bit at this, this mm. self-actualization point because, um, mm. the, from the, it's definitely a perspective shift. So Matt, I definitely think you're right in saying the The way to get to, you know, the right, you know, the the code of conduct that is in line with my moral values is to shift perspective away from short term immediate gain to bigger picture. Um, But I don't think it's it's in any way as intellectual as a self-actualization, you know, evolved human being uh, perspective. Because from the perspective of my German grandmother giving a sack of potato to a Jewish woman fleeing through the village... It's not an act of self-actualization at all. It's not an act of, um, I want to be remembered for helping out this woman who Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. starving with her kids. Um, People will not remember that. The thing that's at the forefront of my mind is, uh, how can I hide this so that my four children will not get killed and taken away alongside with me? And Mm -hmm. by the same token, the Rwandan coffee farmer who starts to decide to help the person next door whose husband has crushed and has done things that are, that are far too difficult to speak of to her own family. But she starts to decide to help her wash her coffee beans because we're now in it together. And because this is how we're going to make money together, because we're both dirt poor. We both have nothing else to do uh, that helps us. So we're starting to step over short term grievances, short term hatred. Because it's the right thing to do. But it's not that I am doing mm-hmm. anything to make myself be a, a purer being. It's It just it feels right for these yeah. women yep. to do the right thing in the moment. Yeah,
3: yeah ab- ab- absolutely n- noted. So, so let me take another swing at it because mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you. So it, I didn't mean self-actualization in relation to yeah. self-serving. I think uh, same construct, different words. Um, it's kind of like asking yourself it's kind of the difference is the difference between what do i want versus what is good like you know it's yeah. it's it's it's, it, it's that that's what i meant by this this hierarchy kind of structure that i was using but you know if i use it you know from a, a selfish perspective you know what is good for me versus yeah. what do i want mm-hmm. both great questions both have very different answers mm-hmm. you know i want the pizza i sh- what's good is, is is going for a jog mm-hmm. um and it, and it's that it's it's you know it to be right and that kind of loops back to if you know it to be right then i think by default you will have a positive you know endorphin release or something from doing the thing the same way as your as, as your grandmother's sack and potato stories i completely understand that she didn't give it away to be remembered but my point being is that she remembered And she has told you, and now you remember. So there is something in there in relation to, I did good. There's a pride that comes with it. And maybe that might be a key to kind of unlocking this, which is how can someone act on morality and then receive an emotional kind of kicker out of it? Because then if that becomes a currency that is valued in leadership, suddenly we have a bit of an interesting line into this. To kind of go, okay, and and, and this affects, you know, this affects all the ESG. It affects the UN kind of you know seventeen, uh, you know kind of initiatives. It, it it affects government. It affects everyone. If feeling pride or some form of emotive response behind doing what is good for the greater good becomes the self-serving the payment for one of a better form. And that becomes not commoditized, but you know, storytelling and you know it becomes a thing. Then suddenly I have now a personal motivator to be more moral and be more upstanding based on that moral code, because there's something in it for me. And I'm not saying I'd only do it for some for a reason in for me, like the potatoes. You know, she didn't do it for her. I can clearly acknowledge that. But her story has lived eighty years, like there's something there. And that's, that's worth gold, and that's why I'm kind of trying to find a way into how we can actually foster morality in our leaders and have it be acceptable to make the tough decisions that are the right decisions based on a particular moral construct.
0: I, I do agree, although I'm going to also say that I think there's a caution in there as well, is that by right. chasing a legacy, we can often make bad decisions as well. Oh, yeah. so I think it's it, it it always comes down to that balance of, you know, intent and purpose. And if your intent is to, um, to leave a legacy rather than to do good, it's it it it's always you know it's often going to pervert future decisions. Yeah. And so it's about having that purity of intent almost. And I and I use the word purity in a in a way that that, that kind of uh I feel uncomfortable with anyway, but it it's about having something where you're you're literally that the intent is to do good, the intent is for something to positive to come from this, and the purpose is for you know for that to happen, and if that matches it feels like it's it's good as soon as the intent switches from well the purpose is to stop climate change, but I want to do this because I want to be the the Prime Minister that, that helped save climate change or stop the world from boiling. That kind of, that, that, that intent goes out the window and I think you start making bad decisions because of it.
2: I actually think it's really simple. Listening to you, Matt, now, uh, and to what you just said, Adam, makes it actually quite simple for me. I, I want to bring in ego and Freud. Really simple. to say, we oh. all know what it smells like when somebody is a bit ego driven when somebody does uh, what is the word they they do value signaling right I see this on Twitter and on LinkedIn so much have enjoyed so much advising um, senior leaders in uh, the army defense corps it's been such a pleasure to serve you and that is so not selfless that is so ego driven as opposed to saying um, yeah I think I am going to do what's good for the group. I'm going to do something that's good for my family, my community. It transcends the ego. So when things transcend the ego, the whole world accepts it as being constructive. And when things are just for me, I think we're. this is how the whole world has been set up. Two-year-old toddlers help pick each other, help pick up um, when somebody else, when another toddler has something heavy to lift, you help them. Because we're designed to be made for the community, for something that's bigger than ourselves. But when we're just about ourselves, when we are um, protecting our ego in any shape or form, that morality, that code of conduct that has character, It's not going to happen. Is it not that simple?
0: So what you're saying is ego is the enemy.
2: Ego is the enemy. That's the conclusion, I think.
0: (laughs) Ego is the enemy. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm not stealing that horrifically from Ryan Holiday by any way, shape or form. I was going to say. it's like.
3: I, I think the big thing that kind of really landed in this conversation for me is Matt's point about statues.
0: That's interesting. And if
3: I think about how it's been kind of actualized, uh, at least what I've seen, you have people, they put up little pin boards and they put pictures of the people that they've, you know, their aspiration board. Oh, there's a picture of this person, there's a picture of that person. It's, you know, there is attributes in these individuals, whether they're current, past, whatever, um, that you aspire to adopt and become. And the statue analogy is i think of the same the same construct of just how much credibility having an eye over your shoulder whether it be a statue a picture on a wall but the respect is there respect is the currency that exists between mm-hmm. the eyes and your action and mm-hmm. if you can go to bed at night knowing that you've done the right thing by that um then you're probably staying somewhat close to to your morals. That's what I've taken mm-hmm.
1: away. I adore that too. Yeah. I adore that too.
2: I'm, I'm right. going to give you the last word, Matt, because you, you we're we're well right now, uh, I I want to expand on how how much I respect and adore this stories. You know, the stories whispered in our ears through the statues, um, because that then comes to the the distinction between. What you said, Adam, what I want versus what's good for me. The statue or the these eyes tell me mm. where I need to go. Matt, sorry.
0: And and I'll agree with you, and I think the only thing I really want to add is I guess that is then why there is so much um media interest in the the statues or the busts that US presidents decide to display um, you know, in the White House. Um, and you'll see, oh, we've put the Winston Churchill bust up or we've taken it down or we've moved it. And all of a sudden they saying, well, well, who actually is looking over our shoulders? And I think that that becomes a really interesting thing. And it becomes quite telling when you have big shifts from one president to another. And all of a sudden the decor has changed. The busts have changed and you realize that actually these are that the, there's a lot of signalling as to who do we respect that comes from that
3: yeah it's absolutely because if you use winston as an example um there is no shortage of people who think he's an absolute scumbag mm. so it's context dependent which is ironic because i'm currently holding a churchill war rooms pen <laughs> and it's on that note that we will close out the session Um the strategy behind morality in leadership. I've worked for my money this one. This is good. This is good. It's a it's a tough (laughs) one to crack. But I think we've inched it forward. And I'm sure there will be more episodes to come soon enough. Subscribe, do all those things you meant to do.
1: Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr. Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee and to find more episodes visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast.